Well, good evening. Let's all turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Actually, though, uh, to get the kind of the flow, the context, let's kind of back up. We already studied this section last week, but let's back up to chapter 8, verse 34, because it all kind of flows together. Now, remember, they're up in the area of Caesarea Philippi. They've withdrawn, yes, from Jerusalem and Judea, which is a real powder keg for Jesus right now. They withdrew up to the Galilee uh, to do some ministering, but now even that has gotten a little bit too hot around there because now even they're trying to find something to accuse him with and kill him. We're about six months from the cross at this point. And so Jesus and his disciples kind of withdraw up near Caesarea Philippi, which is on the very northern border of Israel at the base of Mount Hermon, the very place where the Jordan River begins. Okay, So they're up in that region there. And he asks them a question, who do men say that I am? That's earlier in the chapter. And some say you're Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the other prophets. And he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. He had a, a, a real shining moment there, but then he went on to uh, blow it pretty badly when he rebuked the Lord. And Jesus turned around and rebuked him. And then in verse 34, it says, And when he had called the people to him, with his disciples also he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's the context, okay? He's talking about living, he's talking about discipleship, really. But as we said last week, there really is no such thing biblically as a Christian who is not a disciple, or a disciple who's not a Christian, okay? Sometimes people erroneously try to separate the two. Certainly we understand that there is different levels of commitment even among Christians, I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying, though, some people will teach you can be a Christian, but not really a disciple. Uh, a person can get saved, but still be very currently minded and so on, and then someday decide to get serious, and that's when they decide to be a disciple, and then these words apply to them. No, these words of Jesus spoken here in verses 34 through 38 speak to every Christian, because a Christian is a disciple, a disciple is a Christian. So Jesus is basically using this whole concept of discipleship as a synonym for being saved. Every saved person, uh, you can only be saved unless you're willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Christ. That's identification. See, uh, A lot of people believe a lot of right things about Christ mentally, intellectually, but are not saved because they have not identified with Christ in the sense of following after Him and obeying what He has said. So... We covered that last week. But he's saying, if you're ashamed of me now, if you won't live for me now and follow in my footsteps now, you know, by denying yourself and going to the cross, even as I will do, then when I come back the second time to reign in glory, I'll be ashamed of you then. And then he goes on to say, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, 
a parallel passage, which we'll just read for a second to kind of get the flavor here. Actually, the end of chapter 16. Jesus says, Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who will not, who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, somebody, some would say, Oh, now wait a minute. Obviously, Jesus was mistaken here. In fact, some will point to this and say, Look, Jesus said there were some standing there, some of the apostles standing there with him, who would not die until they saw the kingdom of God established. Well, they're all gone, and the kingdom of God still hasn't been established on the earth. Doesn't this prove Jesus was mistaken? Doesn't this prove he was fallible? Uh, no, obviously. If you believe, as I believe, who Jesus is, no. Uh, being God, of course, he couldn't make a mistake. He was absolutely infallible. And because we believe that, that should be the very you know, foundation upon which we interpret everything the Lord says. I mean, let's face it. If you believe he's God and that he was incapable of making an error, uh, then if you read something that doesn't seem to make sense or seems to be erroneous, then obviously we're not interpreting it properly. The word kingdom in the Greek is basileia, and it does refer to the kingdom, but it can also be used in kind of a metaphorical way to, to talk about majesty, regal splendor, royal majesty. Uh, it doesn't have to refer to kingdom literally. It could refer to kingdom majesty, the same way we talk about a scepter. And of course, we know what a literal scepter is, but we talk about term, the Bible uses the term scepter often to, as, a, as a, a kind of a metaphor for authority. Jesus is saying there are some of you who are standing here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming with his regal majesty, his royal majesty. Jesus Christ wasn't talking about them not dying before they saw him establish his kingdom. He was simply saying to them, some of you will not die until you get a little preview of my second coming glory. Now the passage just flows. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. This is the fulfillment of what he was saying. Jesus was not mistaken. He knew what he was talking about. He wasn't saying there's some among you who won't die till I establish my kingdom. He was just simply saying, he was talking to them earlier, just the verse before, about how that, look, it's not easy to be my disciple. You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow after me. It's a very difficult path. And later on then in John's gospel, the night before his crucifixion, he elaborated a little bit. He said, look, if they've hated me, they're going to hate you also. If you were of the world, the world would love you because the world loves its own. But you're not of this world. I've called you out of this world. Therefore, the world is going to hate you and persecute you. Don't you understand that a student is not greater than his master, neither is a servant greater than his Lord? If they've done these things, if they've done these things to me... Don't expect them to treat you any differently. And he was laying out the very difficult standards or requirements involved in discipleship. But he also then wanted to kind of balance that by saying, but you know what? There's coming a future time when all the suffering you endure now is going to give way to eternal glory. And he wanted to give them a little preview of that because he knew the road ahead of them, especially after he would be taken from them, was going to be quite difficult. And they needed to have something to hang on to. You know, Paul the Apostle said something that I think every Christian should remember when we face difficult times and adversity and all. He said, we know that these light afflictions, which are but for a moment, 
are working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen, because the things which are seen, this material world, they're temporary. The things that are unseen, they are eternal. Remember we talked last week about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 as the writer to the Hebrews uses Moses as an example of a man of great faith. And it says that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, the whole world really was actually his. Uh, he was in line for the throne. But he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but instead chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season. Looking beyond this life to the life to come, he looked toward the reward. Moses did the very thing we're talking about. He didn't look at this life as being something worth investing his whole, you know, putting all his uh, his money in. I, this wasn't everything he invested all his time and all his energy in. He recognized this was, this was transitory. This life was passing away. The life to come was the thing to be focused on, even though now it meant to suffer afflictions with the people of God. That was mu much better to suffer affliction for 40, 50, 60, 70 years now, but to enter into eternal glory then... And so it was, a, it was no contest in his mind. So it says, now after six days, Jesus took. But he took Peter, James, and John, kind of the inner circle. You say, well, why Peter, James, and John? Well, we don't really know. God's sovereignty is such where, you know, God chooses those of us to do certain things or to get alone with him in a very personal, intimate way for reasons that sometimes are not clear to us up front. We know that these men had a tremendous ministry. Now, uh, J. Vernon McGee says that he felt that Jesus kind of kind of kept Peter, James, and John close to him more than the others because they were weaker than the others and they needed a little more encouragement. I don't see it that way. I think that Peter, James, and John probably were a little more sensitive to the Lord, a little more open to what he was all about and what he had to say. We know Peter went on to be the spokesman for the church one that God used very powerfully in the early days of the, of, the, of the early church, as we see in the book of Acts. John, of course, the beloved apostle, lived the longest of any of them uh, and wrote down a gospel and three epistles in the book of Revelation. James was the first apostle to be martyred, and we're not sure why the Lord brought him, except maybe to encourage him, because he knew his death was coming soon. But anyways, the Lord took these three and led them up on a high mountain. Now, uh, historically, Mount Tabor is looked upon as the as the uh, traditional site of the Transfiguration. But Mount Tabor is south of Galilee. Remember now, they're north. They're way up in the northern area of Caesarea Philippi. Besides, Mount Tabor is around, I don't know, a thousand feet high. That's not a high mountain. Many believe it was Mount Hermon, which, as I said, was up there in the area of Caesarea Philippi. In fact, Caesarea Philippi is at the very base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is 9,200 feet high. So probably Mount Hermon was the site of the transfiguration. He brought them up there, and as he was up there, he was transfigured before them. The Greek word there is metamorpheo, which is the word we get our word metamorphosis from. A metamorphosis is to change form basically from the inside out. It's kind of like what, a, not kind of like, it's exactly like what a caterpillar goes through and enters into the cocoon and out comes a butterfly. It's the same basic creature, 
but now in a whole different form. Jesus Christ began to radiate. Don't forget the Bible says that Jesus was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that God was, the glory of God, was resident in Jesus Christ. But all this glory was veiled or covered with humanity or with his flesh. Inside he was very God. I mean, he was totally God. But all this glory was covered or veiled with his humanity, with his flesh, his earthly body. During the transfiguration, you might say the Lord kind of, in a sense, turned inside out. The glory that was in him began to radiate outwardly. And we got a glimpse as he changed forms. He went from his earthly form to his glorified form, the form that he will come with when he comes back to the earth the second time. In fact, in the end of uh, Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus is talking about the tribulation and those events leading up to his second coming, it says here in verse uh, chapter 24, verse 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. You get it? He is going to light the sky up with his glory. Every eye, it says, will see him. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. See, that's the glory we're talking about here. And they're getting a little glimpse of that, a little preview of that right now on the Mount of Transfiguration. A metamorphosis is a change. You're the same basic creature, but you're changed from the inside out. It's quite different from masquerade, which is a change outwardly that doesn't come from anything inward, right? As Christians, we don't just put on a mask. We're transformed. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, because this, of course, relates to us too. Someday, of course, like Jesus, we will receive our glorified body. But even until then, we are being transformed, in a sense. And someday, of course, it will be brought to full fruition when we receive our glorified bodies, and we too will shine with the glory of God. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We're being transformed too. Uh, the word there, transformed, is the same Greek word, which we get our word metamorphosis from. The context Paul was speaking of was this. Remember when Moses went up on top of the mount, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and there he spoke with God and received the law? What happened when he came down? His face was shining. It was glowing, right? But he put a veil on. Why? To keep people from being blinded by the glory? What did Paul say? Why did he cover his face? The glory was fading. And he didn't want people to see the glory was fading. Yes, the law was glorious. But the first covenant was fading. and would be replaced by the second covenant whose glory would never fade because it would be an eternal covenant based on what Jesus did, not based on anything we would do. See, the first covenant was based upon man's faithfulness. Therefore, it was doomed to fail from the beginning. 
We weren't capable of keeping the Ten Commandments or the law of God. In fact, we realized from the New Testament that Paul taught us that really God gave us that law to show us we couldn't keep it, to show us how far from keeping God's righteous standard we fell in the hopes that we would look for another way to be righteous. That way would be Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Moses' glory, having spoken to God face to face and the glory of the law given to him, was glorious and caused his face to shine, but it was a fading glory. It was a reflected glory. Jesus, though, he had a radiant glory. It wasn't reflected. It came from within him, see, and caused uh, him to radiate with the glory of God that was inherent within his nature. Also, in Romans 12, we're talking about this transformation. Obviously, you know the passage. Verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed metamorphosis how by the renewing of your mind paul tells us in second corinthians 3 18 also by the spirit of god the spirit of god i believe working through the word of god which transforms our minds and allows the spirit to transform us from the inside out that's christianity by the way as opposed to religion religion tends to masquerade people it tends to mask people with a righteous covering, but does nothing for the inside. It can't really do anything to affect the heart. So religion can only affect the surface. It's only a change outwardly that, through outward circumstances. Christianity, though, is a, it's a whole change of nature. The Spirit of God comes in, you're born again on the inside, and as Jesus said, cleanse the inside of the cup, it'll overflow and cleanse the outside also. It's a transformation that comes from within. Through the Spirit of God, having come into us, born again now, new nature, but now the Word of God we constantly feed upon and it gives the Holy Spirit, it kind of energizes that power of the Spirit, then it, He transforms us from the inside out. So Jesus was transfigured, transformed before them, and it says His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer, and I, I got a kick out of that the first time I read that, no launderer on earth can whiten them. I suppose that was just Mark's quaint way of saying, look guys, this wasn't something normal. This was beyond the normal realm. This was something supernatural here. You know, he just didn't go into the nearest telephone booth and slip on this white outfit and here he is. No, this was something that was supernatural. The glory of God was radiating through him. He became like the sun in a sense. Remember how it says that when God created man originally, in one of the Psalms, I forget which one now, it says that man was originally clothed in light. We know that God is light. Once we reflected the glory of God completely before the fall, after the fall, that glory was gone. See, man fell, the glory was taken from him, but someday because of Christ and what he did on the cross, we're going to be returned to that pre-fall glory where we truly reflect the glory of God and receive a new body, and uh, we wait for that day, don't we? Well, they're up there, and Jesus now starts shining like the sun. In verse 4, Then Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, here's an interesting thought. People say to me all the time, Look, do you think we'll know our loved ones in heaven? And this passage is one of those passages that says, absolutely yes. And by the way, we don't know how they knew Moses and Elijah. I mean, 
Obviously, they had never seen Moses and Elijah. It just somehow, supernaturally, they knew this was Moses and Elijah. And I believe when we are finally taken to heaven, supernaturally, we're just going to know everybody there. We're not going to need to be introduced. No name tags. <laughs> Hi, I'm, you know, no. None of that. We're just going to supernaturally know, hey, that's Paul the Apostle. Never saw him before, but I, I know that's him. See? But the idea is that, we, yes, we will know each other. They knew this was Moses and Elijah. Now, they appeared to Jesus. Luke tells us that the conversation focused around his death. I think Luke describes it as departure. Actually, that's the literal term in the Greek. But the word we get the word exodus from. So they were talking about his exodus, his departure, which, of course, was his death on the cross. Interesting, though, the Holy Spirit chose a word like Exodus to describe it because he wanted us, no doubt, to make the correlation between this Exodus that was going to bring redemption for the whole world after the blood of the Lamb was applied in the cross or at the cross to another Exodus, of course, led by Moses, who was a type of Christ, leading the people of God out of Egypt, redeeming them, Egypt being a type of the world, after the blood of the Lamb was applied. See the correlation there? And God wanted us to no doubt make the connection that Moses was a uh, foreshadowing of another deliverer, the deliverer, who would come and would be the Lamb of God also who would apply his own blood to humanity and would redeem us through his own blood. So here they are. They're talking here up on this Mount of Transfiguration and all. And uh, verse 5, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he, did know, he didn't know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Matthew tells us that they were asleep. They had fallen asleep. And, you know, all of a sudden they wake up, and here's Jesus radiating like the sun. Moses is there, and Elijah is there, and Peter... God love him. I mean, he didn't know what to say, so he just kind of rambled off something. It's it, it truly been said, it's better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you might be a fool than to open your mouth and prove it to them. So, you know, sometimes if you don't know what to say, it's better just to say nothing. But uh, Peter, true to his nature, had to ramble on something. So he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let me go ahead and build... Uh, a few booths, uh, one for you, one for Moses and Elijah, and let's just kind of stay up here, okay? Hey, you know what? I can relate to Peter. There are times that I have felt such closeness to the Lord, such a mountaintop experience, I'm sure you have too at times, that you just want to kind of stay up there forever. It's, Lord, I don't want to come down. I just want to stay up here and enjoy this fellowship. This is great. And as nice as that is, and as wonderful as it is, that's not how the kingdom of God is built, all right? God may lead us up to the mountaintop for a while. I mean, there are times when Jesus will take us away by himself. You know, it says here in verse what? Verse 2, he led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. You know, sometimes Jesus will take us apart from everyone and everything to get alone with him and kind of a mountaintop experience to kind of revitalize us, refresh us. Because if we don't allow Jesus to take us apart sometimes, we're going to fall apart. If we don't, you know, get away from the trials and the pressure at times to be with him. And you know what? It's so nice you want to stay up there. But Jesus had just talked about discipleship. 
and how that there's a cross in it. And you've got to follow after him and deny yourself. We're going to be disciples and build the kingdom. The kingdom isn't built on the mountaintop. Really, the kingdom is built in the valleys. We don't grow on the mountaintops, by the way. We grow in the valleys. You know, We want to kind of be lifted, <laughs> airlifted by God from mountaintop to mountaintop. But really, it's the valleys that make the mountaintops possible. You learn in the valley. You grow in the valley. And that kind of carries you to the mountaintop where you then can enjoy that time with the Lord and all. But it's, it's nice to want to hang up there. You know, Peter said, Lord, you know, we, we just want to kind of hang up here with you. Now, what he had to say might not have been all that foolish because as I was studying this, I found out that Bible chronologers have determined that this was probably, this event probably took place in October, the month of Tishri, six months from the cross, right? Well, the month of Tishri in the Jewish calendar is the month at Feast of Tabernacles is celebrated along with Yom Kippur and the Feast of Trumpets. It could very well be that they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration during the very week that the Feast of Tabernacles was taking place. Remember that the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast that ran from the 15th to the 21st of the month of Tishri. And the first of the month was the Feast of Trumpets, and the 10th of the month, month was the Feast of Yom Kippur. Then you had the 15th to the 21st was the Feast of Tabernacles. And the idea was that they were to make thatched huts out of palm branches and things, and they were to kind of lean them up against their houses and move out of their houses into these huts, these booths, as they were called. Tabernacles, booths, uh, same thing in the, in the Greek. They were, you know, there was the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. And there was supposed to be enough room in these thatched huts in the sides for the wind to blow through, enough room in the ceiling for you to be able to look up at night and see the stars in the heavens. And the idea was that God wanted his people to move out of their comfortable houses into these booths to remind them of the hardship that their forefathers endured in the wilderness when they slept under the stars for 40 years as God led them eventually into the promised land, God did not want them to forget their heritage and to forget those who had endured such hardship that they might endure such blessing, right? And I think it's good to look back. I think it's good to remind ourselves of the hardship in our own context of those who gave their lives and those who founded this country and things that we never forget what they did because if we forget the past, well, we're going to drift aimlessly in the present. And this is kind of what's happening in America today. We have broken free from our foundation. And now we're just drifting, you know. No moral absolutes anymore that this country was built upon. We're just kind of drifting. And God recognized if you don't remember your heritage, godly heritage, you're not going to walk in it. So he wanted them to understand this. And the Feast of Tabernacles reminded them of this event. Well, it could be that this was going on right in the midst of this feast. And Peter might have been saying this in response to that whole thing. Well, Lord, let us build some booths for you and Moses and Elijah. We don't know. He might have just had a bad dream and woke up and I don't know. But uh, sounds like that could be uh, a reasonable explanation. Also, I want you to see something else. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. In a spiritual sense, I want you to notice something. The whole context here is dealing with Jesus' second coming, right? In fact, this so impacted Peter that he wrote about it in the sec well, in both of his epistles, but in the second epistle, really, chapter 1. I mean, this really impacted Peter, and no doubt, 
That's one of the reasons the Lord took him up there, because he wanted Peter to write these things down. And later on, we're going to see that Jesus forbid them to tell anybody until after his crucifixion what had happened here. But notice what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He said, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, what are, you, what are you talking about, Peter? Well, he goes on. For he received, see, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Again, the whole concept of kingdom, see, could mean royal majesty. You know, you'll not taste death, some of you, until you see me coming in my royal majesty. Well, this is what Peter's saying. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is talking here about this very event. And how that the Lord showed him this to show him that he might write it down for all of us that Jesus Christ is coming again in glory. I mean, we can bank on that no matter how bad things get. And that no doubt was the whole point of Jesus giving them this glimpse of glory because he knew the hardships that were going to be coming very shortly. See, the bridegroom was about to be taken away from them and they were going to be suffering quite a bit. And Jesus wanted to give them something to hang on to, something future. The glory that would be coming. Hey, this light affliction is but for a moment. Hang on. Keep focus on the eternal because someday it's going to give way to everlasting glory. Now, here's the thing. I want you to see this whole thing deals with the second coming, okay? And notice there's three groups represented here in a sense. Moses, Elijah, and the Jewish believers, the disciples. Moses represents those who had died and were resurrected. Moses died. We know that. And yet he's brought with Christ. Elijah was raptured, wasn't he? He was translated. He didn't see death. He's brought with Christ. And then you have those who are alive that will be there when Jesus returns. So you have those that have died in Christ. And Moses believed in God's Messiah because we know Hebrews says he looked for the reward and was willing to suffer the reproach of Christ. So Moses represents all those who have died in Christ. Elijah represents all those who are raptured and then come back with Christ when he comes. And there's a third group, those that will be alive on the earth, those believers that will be here when he comes back to the earth. Interesting little thing the Holy Spirit paints here. All right, but why Moses and Elijah? Why, why Moses and Elijah? Why not David, Abraham? I mean, we could pick so many others. Why did Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus on this mount? Well, because, first of all, when you think of Moses, what do you think of? The law. When you think of Elijah, what do you think of? The prophets. I mean, he was the premier prophet, okay? A man that had such incredible uh, power working in his life. Oftentimes, Jesus divides the Old Testament in that way, calling it the law and the prophets. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, remember now this is the, the day of Jesus' resurrection, and he meets 
with a couple of guys who are walking to the road to the village of Emmaus and he begins to talk to them and they didn't recognize him and uh, they were they were bummed out because the Messiah or the, the the one they thought was the Messiah Jesus was now crucified and how could he be the Messiah he's now dead and Jesus kind of scolds them a little bit in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the law and the prophets was a common way of dividing the Old Testament. And in a symbolic sense, what we have here is the Old Testament represented through Moses and Elijah. Now, it's interesting here as we go on, they're talking and Peter didn't know what to say, so he said something kind of dumb. And verse 7 then says, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Very important. As important as the law and the prophets of the Old Testament were, and all they had to say, Jesus Christ became the final word of God to this world. Remember Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3? God, who at different times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by his own Son. Jesus Christ became the embodiment of everything God had been saying for 2,000 years. Or actually for 4,000 years, I should say. Because through the prophets, God revealed his word in bits and pieces, right? About himself, about his plans for humanity, about the kingdom. I mean, it was all spread out over 4,000 years in bits and pieces. All the word of God. Well, what does it say in John's Gospel, chapter 1? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law came through Moses, but grace and th truth came through Jesus Christ. It was as if all that God had ever said, and so much more, was now brought together in one man, Jesus Christ, the Word of God becoming flesh, see? He was the final word. He was the superior one to everything else. They all pointed to the Word and bore witness of the Word. Jesus was the Word. And in that sense... As glorious as the law and all the prophets had to say in the Old Testament was, they all faded into obscurity because now we had God's full revelation of all that he had to say. You see, the Father would not allow Peter or anybody else to put Jesus on the same plane as the law and the prophets. I mean, let us build three booths, Lord. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The Father said, no way. This is my beloved son, hear him. And as they looked up, because Matthew says, when the father boomed out of heaven, this voice, they fell on their faces in terror. And all of a sudden, Jesus walked over and touched them and lifted them up. And they were said, don't be afraid. And suddenly, it was only Jesus. The law and the prophets had faded away. It was only Jesus now. The father said, look, all that I've said before was good, obviously, and led up to this moment. But now you have my son, hear him. 
don't live in the Old Testament anymore. The law is over with. All the prophets, all they said pointed to this moment. There is so, uh, there's a, a, a doctrine that's kind of uh, gaining popularity today called plural covenants. Maybe you've heard of it. You might soon. The doctrine of plural covenants probably got its start with people that loved the Jews, and we all love the Jews, right? And people that, because they loved the Jews, wanted so desperately to kind of get them into the kingdom somehow without holding them to the same standards or the same gospel that we were held to. You know what I'm saying? So plural covenants basically says this, Jesus Christ came and presented the gospel and died for Gentiles and such, and for us to be saved, we need to believe what Jesus said. But the Jews, they could still be saved through the Mosaic Covenant. If they just go ahead and keep the law and do their best with the Old Covenant, they can be saved too. Well, I understand the love for the Jews that would want so badly to get them saved. And yet, nobody can be saved unless they're saved God's way. Let's not forget it was a Jew, Peter who said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. Uh, you know, I'd love to somehow work it out where everyone makes it. But you've got to come God's way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Mosaic covenant, over. It was fading. It was not eternal. The covenant in Jesus' blood, the eternal covenant, that's the covenant that is eternal. That is the only covenant that brings us into the kingdom. Uh, sorry. You have to come his way or you don't get there. So I understand that, but you know, people do a great, great disservice by lowering the standards because they love people and want to see them saved. Nobody gets saved when you lower the standards. Nobody gets saved except for the blood of Christ. And all you're doing is giving people a false sense of salvation when really they're not right with God because they don't believe in Christ. So he said, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus. And that's, of course, how we should see it today. It should be only Jesus. The law, all the old covenant things are passed away. It's only Jesus now. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Don't forget that kingdom fever was already building. Uh, a lot of people had already wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king because of the way he fed them with small amounts of food, you know, and he healed the sick. And they just wanted to make him king because of all the physical benefits that they, they derived from his ministry. But... He didn't want to do anything to whip people up. He knew if they went around right now before his death and said how that he had radiated like the sun and the glory of God and all, people would have probably gone into a frenzy and just, again, by force, dragged him uh, into power. And, of course, he didn't want that. He knew that's not why he had come the first time. First time he came to die. Second time he would come to reign. So he said, look, don't tell anybody until... Uh, after I have risen from the dead. Now, verse 10 says, So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Now you think, guys, is anyone home in there? It's like, I mean, how many times has he told them already he was going to die, and on the third day, rise from the dead? They never seem to understand that. Now we look back with 2020 hindsight, and we kind of shake our heads and go, geez, what a bunch of blockheads. I mean, why couldn't they? But you know what, gang? We have to understand 
their context and their culture. From the time they were just little children, they were told very strongly that Messiah, when he came, would establish the kingdom. He would, in fact, overthrow the yoke of Rome. He would establish his kingdom in Israel and reign from Jerusalem. And all the Jews would be his prime ministers over all the face of the earth. And they were really, this was the whole mindset, you see. That was, that was a thing that they were, they were brought up to believe from the time they were just little children. Now all of a sudden they got somebody they really believe is Messiah, and yet he's talking about dying and rising from the dead. I mean, first of all, they couldn't even deal with the dying part, let alone rising from the dead. And I'm convinced every time he talked about, I'm going to die, their minds just shut off. They never did hear and on the third day rise again because the resurrection basically took them by surprise. And obviously part of it was they were still very dull of spiritual understanding. I mean, the Spirit of God had not yet come upon them. They were not yet filled with the Spirit. So they were very carnally minded still. And looking at Jesus in, in, in very selfish terms, I want to be prime minister. That's really why I'm hoping that he's Messiah. Because really, I want to be his prime minister, you know, and I want to sit on his right hand, and, and I want to sit in his left hand. And uh, they were very kindly minded, looking at Jesus pretty much as a as a means by which they could gain a lot of earthly glory and riches. So, you know, he wasn't fitting into their conceived deal, and and they were having a hard time understanding some of the things he was saying, as we all will anytime we bring to the scriptures or to what Jesus says preconceived ideas. That's the worst way to come to the Bible. Empty yourself of all the preconceived ideas and then open the Bible and read it with a clear mind and see if God won't reveal to you what the truth is. I told that to a guy who was being witnessed to by Jehovah's Witnesses and he was confused because of I was telling him one thing, they were telling him another thing. And I said, look, forget about it. Forget everything I've said. Forget everything they said. Go and pray. Read the Bible. A week later, he called me up. He was so excited. He said, you were right. You were right. I did what you said. I see it now. I see it. God showed me. God became a Christian. Hey, God can reveal to you the truth. You know what I'm saying? But don't go to the Word with preconceived ideas. It's the quickest way to get into trouble. Because then you're trying to fit everything in and twisting everything to fit into your preconceived ideas of what God said instead of what He's really saying. So they were having a hard time because of that very thing. Verse 11, now, now they're coming down from the mountain. And this has been a pretty extraordinary day, okay? I mean, wow, this has been pretty, this is good stuff. Uh, oh, by the way, one thing I also forgot to bring out is this. They were having this incredible vision of Jesus radiating like the sun. Moses was there. Elijah was there. This is real good charismatic stuff. I mean, think about it. Right? This is a first-class, top-notch vision, right? What does the Father do? He says, you know, this is my beloved son, hear him. And when they got off off the ground, the vision was gone and it was only Jesus. The father redirected them from the vision onto his son, who was the word of God. And I believe that as incredible as visions are, and God has given visions to people and no doubt will give others visions, they are not to be the focus of our Christianity. They're not to be the focal point of discipleship. The Word of God and the Word of God alone is to be the focal point, to be the foundation, right? Uh, visions are great. I wouldn't mind getting a couple here or there. I mean, but they're not to be the focus. Some people live for visions. In fact, they live so much for visions that they now are trying to conjure them up themselves. 
And we've been talking about visualization for the last couple weeks. And you know what? If God decides to give you a vision and He initiates that, that's called revelation. If you try to conjure up God, that's called divination. I don't care how sincere you are. You just don't sit down and through the power of your mind conjure up God. That's divination. And God forbids it. See? And people have gotten a lot of trouble trying to visualize things and trying to conjure up visions from God because you open, you've used an occult technique to get a vision, you're basically inviting Satan to come and deceive you. Because if you're going to use an occult technique, which God forbids you to use, to get a vision of God, Satan can pose as an angel of light to deceive, right? And so we've got to be very careful. But they've had this tremendous experience, and God does not want them to focus, though, on the vision. He wants the focus to be the Word, His Son, the Word of God. So they're coming down now from the mountain, and uh, it's pretty incredible. And in verse 11 it says, And they asked Him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to, you, say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Now, you need to turn to Matthew again, 17, because it gives us a little more insight. Now, this was something on their minds. Again, remember, they were taught... From the time they were small boys, the scribes had taught that before Messiah comes, Elijah will first come. Now you say, well, where do they get that from? Well, the very last promise that God gave to them in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, or as my Italian mother-in-law says, Malachi. <laughs> Seriously, she does. Or she did until I had to kind of correct her on that. Um, one of the very last things the Lord promised here in verse... 5 of Malachi 4 Behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse and that was the last thing God said to close out the Old Testament period and so the rabbis and scribes and all were teaching that Elijah and rightfully so had to first come now, the disciples are kind of baffled because they believe Jesus to be Messiah. But where's Elijah? I mean, if you're Messiah, well, then we've always been told Elijah has to come first. What's going on, Lord? We don't understand. Well, in Matthew chapter 17, they asked the question. In verse 11, Jesus said to them, Elijah truly is coming first and will restore all things. That's future tense, right? That's future, okay? Notice now he's going to talk about this in two different ways. He says, yes, you're right. Elijah will come first and restore all things. Then he said, but I say to you that Elijah has already come. Now he's talking past tense. See, if they weren't confused before, they're obviously confused now. We're not confused because we understand this in the context of the first and second coming. But they didn't understand that whole deal yet. And so they were very confused, okay? He said, But I say to you, Elijah has already come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now in chapter 11, verse 14 of Matthew's Gospel, 
he's talking about John. In verse 14, he says, if you, were, if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. See, here's the thing. You say, well, was John the Baptist the reincarnation of Elijah? And some will use this actually, not Christians, of course. But some people will use this to say the Bible teaches reincarnation because Jesus said that John was Elijah. Simple. Doesn't that say that John is, you know, that doesn't that prove that John was the reincarnation of Elijah's spirit? No, absolutely not. The Bible never anywhere teaches reincarnation. The Bible teaches resurrection, which is totally different. But the idea is that, no, John is not Elijah reincarnated. How do we know that? Well, first of all, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, remember when Zechariah, John's father, was in the temple ministering. An angel appeared to him and said, Your wife is pregnant, and he said, You're going to, call, you're going to have a son, you're going to call his name John. Verse 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Uh, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, capital H, the Lord, Messiah, in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Then he quotes directly out of Malachi chapter 4, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist came symbolically as Elijah. He came in the power of Elijah in the sense he came to prepare the way for the Lord. He was not Elijah. He was a kind of a, a foreshadow of Elijah, kind of a type of Elijah. Now we know in John's gospel, remember when John was, the Baptist was out in the uh, chapter 1 in the wilderness there, baptizing and, and preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, he drew so many people that a delegation of Pharisees and chief priests came out to the Judean wilderness down there by the Jordan to find out who this character was. And they asked him a series of questions. They said in uh, John chapter 1, verse 19, uh, Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed... I am not the Christ. They, they asked him plainly, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, well, then are you Elijah? He said, no. Now John said he wasn't Elijah. John didn't claim to be the reincarnation of Elijah. Uh, well, maybe he didn't know. Maybe he was and didn't know it. Well, all right. The only other thing I can tell you is this. When Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus here, John had already lived and died. So if John was the reincarnation of Elijah, then John and Moses would have appeared to Jesus, not Moses and Elijah. You see what I'm saying? If the spirit of Elijah had already incarnated itself into John, and now John had died, it would have been John and Moses, not Elijah and Moses, okay? They're separate. People say, well, the body... And I've, some time ago, there was a movie called Out in a Limb, Shirley MacLaine deal, uh, where she advocated, well, in the movie, it was all about the New Age, basically, and her friend, who was supposedly so, you know, spiritual and so 
spiritually understanding of things. He went on to say in the movie that, well, you know, the Bible teaches reincarnation, but the church took it out later on. And that's a statement that many people believe. The Bible originally contained teachings on reincarnation, but the church removed them. And then a guy in re rebuttal to the movie wrote a book, Out in a Broken Limb. And he went on to, to explain different parts of the movie in the light of biblical truth and said what they're referring to, what these people who believe that the Bible at once taught this, and that somewhere along the line the church removed it, it's an erroneous thing based on something that took place in 553 AD, the Second Council of Constantinople, which was convened to denounce or to anathematize the teachings of Origen, one of the early church fathers. And Origen believed in a, a few heresies. And they listed, I think, about 14 or 15 heresies that they denounced Origen for in his, in his, you know, his teachings and all. One of the things Origen believed was the pre-existence of souls. This is a Mormon belief that spirits or souls are up in heaven, these disembodied spirits, and they're waiting for bodies to incarnate into. And that's why Mormons believe you've got to have a lot of kids. It's a sin not to have a lot of kids because all these souls are waiting for bodies. See? Now, Origen believed that. And so it was denounced by the church at the Second Council of Constantinople in 553 AD. This was one of the things that, that was denounced. Well, they erroneously believed that this was talking about reincarnation. No. Origen believed a lot of wrong things, but one right thing he believed was he didn't believe that the Bible taught reincarnation. He did not believe in reincarnation. That was the one thing to his credit he didn't believe in. So that whole thing was not about, and, and, and what they say is, this council was convened to, to remove the teachings of Jesus on this area of reincarnation. This was not a council that was convened to do anything with the teachings of Jesus. It had to do with the the teachings of origin and early church father, you see, and they erroneously assumed that he taught reincarnation or and it wasn't anything like that. So people will, you know, throw these things out and you think, oh my goodness, what do they know that I don't know? Did the Bible really teach? No. No, no, these people grab onto these things, they don't even know what they're talking about and make you think like, oh, they have some inside information that the Bible at one time and Jesus at one time taught about reincarnation. That's ridiculous. He taught in, in Luke chapter 16 about a man named Lazarus who died. Remember, a rich man? And lifted up his head and found himself in hell and was tormented. And, and if Jesus would have believed in reincarnation, the Lord could have said at that time, well, you know what, hang in there. You'll be uh, reincarnated soon. I mean, no. Uh, that was it. That was, that was the guy's final resting place. No, nowhere in the scriptures is this taught. So no, John was not the reincarnation of Elijah. Um, verse 12, Elijah does first come. Now, here's the thing. Here's what Jesus was basically saying. Look, gang, here it is. If you would have received me as your Messiah, then John would have been the spiritual fulfillment of that verse in Malachi. But of course, the Lord knew that they weren't going to receive him. The Lord knew they were going to crucify him. And he was going to come back again. And Jesus is talking in the past tense and in the future tense. Yes, he said, Elijah will come first and restore all things. But what is he talking about? I believe that before Jesus comes back again the second time to establish his kingdom and glory, Elijah is going to come along with Moses. In fact, I think it's interesting here 
that they had this little conference, okay, that talked about his exodus, but also Peter kind of gives us the impression that one of the other subjects they talked about was the second coming. And it's interesting that here Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus, and it seems to indicate in Revelation chapter 11 that the two witnesses that are going to come to the earth during the tribulation period, they're not named, but many believe they're going to be Moses and Elijah for several reasons, and I think this is one of the reasons here. They appear to Jesus and have this kind of like this briefing, second coming briefing, right? Uh, and, and the idea is that these two guys that are coming in Revelation 11, these two witnesses, have some unusual powers. They have the power to call fire down from heaven, to shut up the heavens where there's no rain for three and a half years, to strike the earth with all kinds of plagues, and to turn water to blood. Now if you look at those things, you find out those were unique to the ministries of Moses and Elijah. Moses struck the earth with all kinds of plagues and turned water to blood. Elijah called fire down from heaven and shut up the heavens for three and a half years so that it didn't rain upon the earth. So I think the Holy Spirit's trying to give us the indication this is going to be Moses and Elijah. Now, in what capacity, I'm not really sure. Not in some reincarnated capacity, I'm, I know that. Maybe these two witnesses will be, in a sense, symbolic of Moses and Elijah. I don't know. Many believe they will be Moses and Elijah. That's speculation. We don't really know. But we know that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is what Malachi says. That's talking about judgment. And after the two witnesses are killed by the earth, uh, by the people of the earth, their bodies lay in the streets for three days. That's the only time that the earth breaks into party during this whole period because these two guys that had caused so much grief on the earth are now dead and they don't even bother to bury them. They just leave their bodies in the street and everyone's giving gifts to each other and the, the whole world is watching this. Now how can the whole world watch one event taking place anywhere in the world and the whole world watches it all at the same time? Well, obviously that verse made no sense even a hundred years ago. But today we understand how that works, right? And I believe you're going to see, here's the world news tonight, right? And here they are, folks, laying, this is the third day, and here they are, their bodies laying in the streets. I can just hear it, right? And people are celebrating. You see people dancing in the background. It's like a Mardi Gras atmosphere. And suddenly the Bible says they stand up on their feet, these two guys. <laughs> and they go zip right up into heaven. And the whole world gets very panicky. And from that point... Many, many plagues and tribulation and all kinds of catastrophes are poured out upon the earth. Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Terrible day of the Lord for those who refuse to believe in Christ. Uh, not for those who have obviously right now have accepted Christ. So I do believe that as Jesus spoke symbolically, yes, Elijah has first come. It was John. If you would have, would have received me, then John would have been the fulfillment, but I knew you weren't going to. So Elijah will come according to the prophecy of Malachi and restore all things um, before the great tribulation. Let's read verse 12 again. Elijah does first uh, come first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? See, he's challenging their preconceived ideas. Hey guys, you know that the scriptures do teach that Messiah is going to suffer many things. They, again, were confused. There was a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament that talked about Messiah being a man who suffered, 
a man who died, you know what I'm saying? And then there was a lot of scriptures that talked about Messiah coming in glory and establishing his kingdom. They were totally confused. And the rabbis were so confused, they were even teaching a dual Messiah theory. That one Messiah would come and he would be a false Messiah who would die, and then the true Messiah would come and he would, would bring the kingdom. But what they were ignorant to was the first and second coming. They didn't see that. They didn't realize Messiah was going to come twice. The first time to suffer and die, the second time to reign in glory. They were ignorant to that. And but see, but as we oftentimes do, they only picked out the good stuff, the stuff they wanted to believe, and ignored all the other verses that tend to talk about things they didn't want to understand or believe. And so Jesus is kind of forcing them to grapple with those verses. Uh, guys, what about all the verses that talk about Messiah's suffering? What about those? He's trying to get them to realize, hey, remember what the Father said? I'm his beloved son, hear me? Guys, wake up. I'm going to the cross first. There's no glory without the cross. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. See? He's trying to get them to break away from their preconceived theological indoctrination at the hands of the Pharisees and scribes. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. And we'll continue on next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your beloved Son, Lord, in whom you are well pleased. Help us to always hear what he has to say. We know, of course, Lord, your whole word really is Jesus in print. The volume of the book Jesus said is written of me. And so, Father, we recognize that it's not just the words in red that are really inspired of you. It's the whole word of God. But help us, Lord, to recognize that the Old Testament pointed to Christ. It was the final word, your final word on the subject, the fullness of all that you wanted to say to us in body form, bodily form. And so, Lord, if we want to know what you're like, help us to look at Jesus because he was the express image of your person. And, Lord, help us to focus on those things which are not seen because perilous times are coming. We see in America more and more our liberties are slipping away. Persecution is beginning to mount more and more. And very probably, Lord, we have before us a tough road. I'm not so sure as tough as the early church had, but we don't know. Maybe there is physical persecution and even martyrdom coming for many Christians in America. We don't know. If it's true, Lord, help us to, like Paul, to focus on the eternal. Help, help us, Lord, to realize that it may get rough, but there is glory coming. We first need to die before we enter into that resurrected glory. Help us to keep our eyes focused on that glory, which will enable us, with your strength and grace, to endure whatever persecution is coming as we stand up as your followers and declare what you have said and we desire to live for you, the world will not love us because we're not of this world. They will hate us and persecute us. Help us, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes focused on that which is unseen. And I just pray, Lord, that you will just work in all of our hearts and um, strengthen us. And Lord, I pray that the transforming work of your Holy Spirit would continue, that we would be changed from the inside out and become more and more like Jesus, being 
changed more and more from image to image, from glory to glory, into the same image, the image of Christ, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We just love you, Lord, and we want to radiate with your love. We want to radiate with your righteousness and holiness. We want the world to see, Lord, in us, our Savior, shining through us. Help us not to be like the world or to go the way of the world, but to shine forth as lights in the world, to draw people to you. But the light also hurts the eyes of those in darkness, and they may want to strike out and persecute us to extinguish the light. That's a reality too, Lord. Help us to be able to endure whatever we have to for the sake of the kingdom. Because if we're ashamed of you now, you'll be ashamed of us someday. But we want to live for you now. We want to die to self, take up our cross, and follow after you. That someday we might reign with you in glory. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.